0: depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another episode of The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. I'm your host tonight. Richard's internet is down. As many of you know, he lives on the side of a mountain in the middle of the desert, and uh, he often has these internet issues come about. And so, unfortunately, he won't be here tonight. I, I know he lives for these shows and it you know, it, it uh it, it 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 hurts him <laughs> to not be able to be here. You know how it is when you lose your own internet. It's like, oh my god uh so uh yeah, I'll, I'll sit in tonight and uh we have a wonderful lineup of guests for you tonight, uh with all varied backgrounds but similar interest and some wonderful uh experience and Knowledge that they're going to share with us that we hope will help improve all of our lives. So with that said, uh, we have no news items, so we're going to get right to the show. And my first guest tonight is Russell Targ. As many of you know, Russell is the co-founder of the Stanford Research Institute, where he and Hal put off uh, put together a program to study ESP. Russell uh, was a laser physicist before he had a course correction and got into the metaphysical studies, which all kind of uh, stemmed from his teenage years as a magician. Um, So, Russell, are you there? Welcome
1: to the other side of midnight. You'd be amazed how many people were teenage magicians. A lot, of, a lot of people in parapsychology, in fact, were got into the field because of things they had seen on the stage when they were doing fake magic. Then they got into real magic. Really, I you're the only one I've heard of about that. But you say there are others. Well, Arthur Hastings, who's no longer with us, was a ve- excellent magician, and Dean Radin was a yep. proficient magician. Ah. Hmm. And, and and other and Daryl Bem. Daryl often presents magic at parapsychology shows, so we shouldn't be losing our credibility by believing things that are shown to us by other magicians. Yeah, and as Arthur C. Clark said, uh, I believe it's his fourth law:
0: uh, any sufficiently advanced Technology will seem like magic to a lesser evolved race. So aliens would come down from the sky and and they would just seem magical to us. Yeah, I have a magic
1: trick that I did starting as a child to give people a warning not to believe, not to think that everything they see is true. The very simple card trick. You say in magic, there's the effect and then there's what's really going on. The effect is. Did I shuffle a deck of cards? You get to shuffle a deck of cards. You fan them out in your own hand, choose one, memorize the card, and give me the deck back, and I tell you your card. Now, that's basically impossible to do if what occurs is what actually happened. So what I described is what you think is happening and a magician has to sell you the story of the card trick that he's doing. Do you really cut the cards? Is that really what's happening? Am I really shuffling the cards? You really get a free choice of the cards in your hand? The answer to all those questions is no. But a magician has to use misdirection so that you will believe what he wants you to believe. And people who are skeptical about ESP research are very frightened that ESP researcher will be deceived by tricky characters who come into their laboratory and know more about sleight of hand and magic than they do. So my principal uh, prowess for getting money for the government from CIA is not that I was a laser scientist or not that I studied psychology in college, but that I was a magician and that I promised them that I was not going to be deceived by any trickster who walks in the laboratory. Because everyone is always afraid that those guys with glasses and white coats are going to be tricked and then everybody will be very embarrassed. Well,
0: yes, I find that uh, some scientists are not spiritual and then other scientists are some of them lack something. And they're just very like, who is the guy? Uh, he's got a book that was a bestseller where uh, he would tell you, he would claim all day long. He would argue with you that none of this uh, metaphysical stuff is real until he had his own experience and he found himself, um, you know, he died and he went to heaven and that's, that's what it took. And now he's a firm believer and he will argue all day long that this stuff is real. So it's funny how. So he's arguing from the, from heaven that it's real. No, he came back and then he wrote a book about his experience. I can't think of his name. If I said his name, you'd know him, because the book was a, a huge seller, but um yeah, he's just one example, and I find that, too. I, I worked with scientists uh, when I was at Harvard for 10, 11 years there. I, I worked with, um, you know, the cosmologists and scientists and mind-brain people, and so I, you know, I tend to sum people up spiritually, and I found some of them were just had no real metaphysical mind to them, where others uh, were absolutely spiritual and they followed the science, and that 's kind of the way i am i 'm been going out of body all my life, but I see it as scientific and have always had that perspective so um, now, how did you what changed for you when you're here you are working uh, let's see it 's like upstate new york you're you're working for a company doing laser uh research and uh i i recall you saying that you you made a breakthrough in uh increasing the power of the laser and so your mind is very focused on physics but then something happened and you ended up getting into this ESP research how did that come about
1: well i had a lifelong interest in esp as all through high school and college i was reading the publications of the American Society for Psychical Research and the Parapsychology Foundation. So I was very familiar with what was going on. And I considered that a, an important field of research because it showed that a significant part of what we learned in graduate school in physics wasn't true. So I, I had a wife and three children. And I was responsible for sending them to school and paying the rent. And I was aware that most parapsychologists who are quite intelligent people, nice people, are also not making very much money. So I would go to parapsychology meetings, annual meetings, international meetings, and the big problem is how are we we going to pay the rent because parapsychologists are underpaid significantly And I didn't wanna, I I grew up during the depression that I was a kid in the late 1930s and I was aware of living in a family that didn't have any money. I didn't wanna replicate that experiment. So I was not going to leave graduate school and go to ESP research. But I had the idea that I was going to be a pioneer in the development of the laser, but I had that opportunity which I grabbed instead of being in graduate school. And I was aware that after a certain period of time, I would be able to trade my laser cards for ESP cards and not not be punished for going into a wacky field. So at, at the end of, in 1972, I had built a very powerful laser. To that? I don't know which, if you could... My camera appears to be on. I don't know if you, John, can see where I see what's on my wall. But I have a thousand watt picture, of a thousand watt laser on my wall, which is the most powerful laser in the world at that time in 1972. And people were very interested in that. And we were going to put it on airplanes and go out in the desert and blow up tin cans. We had lots of things to do with this laser. Eventually. <laughs> We were selling it to General Motors to heat treat locomotive cylinders. So 1,000 watt laser is really a big piece of hardware. In the, my picture, I'm, cutting, I'm drilling a hole in a fire brick. I did a demonstration for the Army who couldn't believe we could make a 1,000 watt laser only one meter long because theirs was 100 meters long. Oh. and they wanted to know what trick we had and we were able to show them what we had done because we had published it, it wasn't a trick we just it was i won't even go to it. it was it was sort of an air-conditioned laser it meant that we could pour tremendous amounts of power into the thing without heating up the gas and eventually that was very very successful and i then followed my path i went to the cia and to nasa who were already supporting my laser work and said, I have something new to do. You thought this other stuff was impossible. Let me show you what I do. What I do now. Mm -hmm. I have an ESP teaching machine. A device that offers feedback and reinforcement and will allow your agents at the CIA or your astronauts and the rocket to become more psychic. This is, CIA guy can be a better agent. The astronaut could become more in touch with the spacecraft. And what are the So you're thinking
0: I, if you, they lost
1: communication,
0: uh, an astronaut there up in the moon, or, and they lose communication, they could communicate telepathically? Is that no,
1: I had the idea that they could be in touch with their spacecraft. There, there was a major, almost crash of Apollo 13 where a rock or a UFO or something hit the side of the spacecraft and they had a failure of a big oxygen tank. And it was only through the great skill of Neil Armstrong who was able to guide this twirling spacecraft and prevent a crash. And von Brown was aware of that. It was a ca- case of a astronaut being in super contact with the spacecraft, and was able to prevent a disaster. And I had walked in to a meeting on speculative technology, and I got a chance to tell Werner von Braun that I had a gadget right here that will help you develop your psychic ability so you can be in touch with the spacecraft. And he would really be one of the few people in the world who would actually resonate with. Uh, ridiculous thing that I was proposing and I showed him how this electronic gadget worked where there were four four colored buttons and four lights and you have to press the button that corresponds to the light that will illuminate and if you do that a bell will ring and now is- let me
0: interrupt here now now Werner came from Germany after the war he had been working on rockets over there and from what I know, the Germans were much more into ESP and metaphysics than our military was. Is that so? And
1: like many high-level people, they had a, everybody has a psychic grandmother, which indeed he had. She always knew when someone was going to be coming from another part of the country or when somebody was going to die. And he was quite aware that some people were psychic. So he was willing to grab my machine and see if he can make the bell ring and indeed he was prodigiously successful as every time your chances are one in four getting the ring the bell and he again and again was ringing the bell and drew a real crowd and people were watching the great man here <clears throat> really hitting the extra high marks psychic medium oracle on my game wow and he then took me to the administrator of NASA, James Fletcher, and said, Target has built stuff for NASA before, built a high-power laser. I knew him at Redstone Arsenal. And he now wants to teach astronauts how to become in touch with their spacecraft. I think that's a good idea, said Werner von Braun.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, Fletcher,
0: and, was he more of a uh straight up scientist or did he have some interest in esp and metaphysics
1: he was a straight up scientist my picture i have a picture of him in a book that i've just published published book called third eye spies and von braun is there standing in front of his rockets and fletcher is standing in next to richard nixon and that's sort of the way they, they went and I was only asking for $80,000. And Ron Brown said, that's not very much money. And he, he's at, uh, he, he's built stuff for us before. And they want to know, where am I going to do this? And I said, I had just met Hal Putoff, who's interested in psychic stuff. He's at Stanford Research Institute. And who should come along at that very moment but Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, who just started a program with SRI. And we know that Mitchell is interested in psychic stuff because he did an experiment from space where people were trying to guess ESP cards, which is a task that's significantly harder to do than what I was asking him to do.
0: Now, do you know what Edgar, you say he was in contact with SRI
1: to do a program. Do you know what that was exactly? What What was he doing? was a future scientist. He wanted to start his organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, yes. which looked at the spiritual part of human beings and do research on the spirit, the spiritual part of consciousness. Ah. And he had helped Willis Harman, who was a distinguished science standard professor, would head up the organization. And Mitchell agreed to take me to meet the President of SRI, Charlie Anderson. So Edgar Mitchell, hell put off another laser physicist, and I uh, met with Charlie Anderson, and with a promise from NASA for money, uh, Anderson said, "Okay, you can do an ESP program here. You just have to keep a low profile." And of course, we did everything but keep a low profile. <laughs> Because our first psychic who visited us was Uri Geller, who was interested in publicity, and not at all interested in a low profile.
2: Mm.
0: Well, I'd like to bring in uh, our next guest, uh, because I'd like her to chime in now and then and uh, add to the conversation. Uh, Let me give her a formal introduction here. Elizabeth Elizabeth Brown is an internationally renowned causative diagnostician. In addition to private clients, she works to support doctors, dentists, clinics, therapists, and consultants in identifying causative factors behind illness, particularly cancer, skin conditions, all forms of allergies, ME, I'm not sure what that is, and sets of symptoms that have no Orthodox label and you can read uh, the rest of Elizabeth's uh, bio here on, on the show page let me tell you how to get there you go to our URL the other side of midnight.com and you scroll down and click on tonight's banner and that takes you to our show page and you can see uh, the guest bios and we also have images to share you can s- see those as well so Elizabeth Welcome to The Other Side of Midnight.
3: Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's an honor, especially, to to meet Russell, (laughs) one of my heroes, I'm afraid, Russell. Sorry about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think that's fine, because uh, he's a hero to a lot of us. And uh, so if you want to chime in, I I want to continue with Richard. uh, Richard. I want to continue with Russell, and uh, but if you if you want to add something to the conversation, go ahead. And then um, I want to spend more time with you during the the second hour. So, Russell, if you'd like to continue, um, you were just saying that you uh, Edgar Mitchell had just um, walked by. You're at NASA. You're presenting this idea to Jim Fletcher that you'd like to start this psychic program, and you can do it with Hal Putoff and So along comes Edgar Mitchell, and then um, what happened next?
1: What happened next is that I found myself with with Ingo Swan, who's who's a prodigious psychic and visionary artist, and he wasn't interested in card guessing or looking in the next room. He said, if I want to look in the next room, I'll open the door. You guys are wasting my time with the trivialization of my ability. Why don't you go hide someplace in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I will describe what it looks like when you get there. So Ingo, with those few words, invented the idea of remote viewing.
0: Well, he brought it back to the modern world because it started back with the Oracle of Delphi, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That would that would be a, a good time, yes. The Oracle of Delphi uh, was able to describe what the uh, king of Persia was going to do at a later time in his palace. And the Oracle of Delphi described very accurately in poetic terms that the uh, king of Persia would be slaughtering a lamb and a turtle and cooking them together in a brass pot with a brass lid. And he told that a hundred days before the rest of the messengers could get back to verify it. So he was able to look what's going on contemporaneously, but many, many miles away. And the king of Persia gave the organ the, Delphi priest organization a hundred gold blocks which uh, were seen by Herodotus and he had them specially cast so there are pictures of these hundred gold blocks as a gift to the oracle because the king was so surprised and pleased that he found the real oracle now, but then well, over we,
0: time, well, society lost interest or for whatever reason, and then you fast forward to today, and you have Ingo Swan come along and just reignite everything, right?
1: That's right. Ingo Swan reignited it, and the fact that we were at SRI, we're, we had Stanford for our first name, and we had CIA for our second name, and we had lots of money. So the reason that we got good publicity rather than bad publicity is that we're a wealthy organization supported by the government, and that's the first time that ever happened in the ESP arena. And the other thing that we were doing correctly, uh, in uh, Duke University, JB got rhymed with having people guessing cars, which is a very hard task to do. Because once you know what the cards are, circle, square, stars, wavy lines, the memory of those images stands as noise in your mind. If I, if I tell you, for example, if I tell you I had a playing card in my hand, hearts, diamonds, spades, or clubs, what do you see? Well, you, you, you're for, totally familiar from a lifetime of seeing playing cards. And the image from your memory of those playing cards our noise in your channel. So we have to do design experiments that make it easy for the psychic to separate the psychic signal from the mental noise. And the idea of mental noise was a contribution that Ingo made. People from time to time would discover that. The first person to talk about mental noise was the... uh, Hindu guru, Padma Sambhava who talked about the things that, he says that your nature is timeless awareness. And if you want to experience consciousness out into the spatial temporal regions, you have to give up your desire to name things and grasp onto them. You have to quiet your mind and experience them. So, and he wrote a book called Self-Liberation, through Seeing with Naked Awareness, Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness was written 1,200 years ago. Sounds like a contemporary novel on how to be psychic. And I, I'm I'm an author of many books, and I'm always happy to see somebody's book written 1,200 years ago is still in print. Yeah. That's, re- that's really encouraging for an author. <laughs>
2: so,
1: so what we were doing at SRI is we're not having people guess cards. The setup we had, which uh, was Ingo's help, of course, is that uh, my, my job was an interviewer. I was not pretending to be psychic, and they didn't want me to be part of the experiment in any psychic aspect. I would sit down with a customer often from the government, and they would come if and they wanted to see something psychic. What they had in mind is that Ingo would just do something psychic, like Ingo would describe where their partner is hiding. And I said that if Ingo does a trick, you'll think it's a magic trick, and you'll go back to Washington and try and figure out how he fooled you. But instead, I want your major to go off with hell put off someplace, and you'll randomly choose a target from a pool of 60 targets, and they will go and hide someplace. In half an hour, uh, I will help you to experience where they are. Now, I don't know what these targets are, but I I will help you quiet your mind and tell me about the surprising images that show up in your awareness. I'm not asking you to name the place because that's... Impossible, basically, naming the source of noise. I just want you to quiet your mind and tell me what you're experiencing about the place. And that turned out to be a particularly good algorithm for helping people to describe it. People right up to the undersecretary defense came to our laboratory, was thinking about having us teach people in Army Intelligence how to look into the distance, look into the future. And he wanted to see something psychic before he gave us a million dollars a year to do that. And now, this, was, this
0: is the political side of it. You got into it strictly for the interest in the metaphysical side. But, of course, the government uh, understands that Russia is farther ahead of us in this field. So, of- so
1: they believed. My contribution is that I found an algorithm which, <clears throat> in which most people could demonstrate psychic abilities to everybody's agreement, that we could publish the findings. That is, what we were doing different is that we were now showing, if somebody comes to our laboratory and says, show me something psychic. And Ingo Swan describes the, the object in the box or the object in the briefcase. They'll think of the trick. But if I tell him, tell him that remote viewing is really very easy, it allows you to look into the distance, look into the future, and describe what you see, what you're experiencing. And you don't have to eat porridge at the feet of your guru you don't have to do anything special. You just have to quiet your mind and look for the surprising image that will come to your mind with regard to where somebody is hidden. And they could be hidden in Soviet Siberia, or they could be hidden down the street in Menlo Park, California. Well,
0: I think that would have been, would have been very apparent when you went to teach. You picked out, you were in a gymnasium, and they said pick out some some of our army people for your program and one of those people was joe McMonigal, who as far as i know was not into psychic stuff he wasn't a medium he wasn't any he was a hardcore soldier i mean this guy was on the front lines he's like the scout um, just uh, amazing life in, in the military and then you come into the gymnasium And out of nowhere, you pick these people. And as it turns
1: out, Joe McMonago was very psychic. Yeah, he's probably the most successful remote viewer alive today. Now, I didn't pick them out at random. I interviewed them. And Joe admitted to having all sorts of psychic experiences in Vietnam. He said he got off of his plane when he first arrived. And he saw in the distance a big yellow plane, similar to the one he just got off. And nine months later, excuse me, nine months later, when he left Vietnam, there was an Air America plane painted yellow, which took him back to the United States. So he was seeing into the future. And he was seeing into the future quite reliably. So he was the first one I chose for our <clears throat> program. And so we went up to our laboratory, and I said, well, Hal has gone to hide someplace with your major, Scotty Watt. I have no idea where they've gone. And, and he said, well, I certainly don't know how to do this. I said, it's very easy. If you just do what I tell you, everything is going to be all right. So in a certain sense, I'm still doing magic tricks. i have to set the stage so that people realize that I'm not testing their ESP. At Duke, Duke, uh, J.B. Ryan did a lot of successful experiments and was the father of ESP in America, but he was testing ESP. People weren't aware that they're in some kind of testing situation. Uh, I was aware that that's not a good idea. So when Joe sits down with me, I say, we know that you're of psychic ability. Everybody has psychic ability. You may have a little more than other people. All I want you to do is quiet your mind and tell me where Scotty Watt is hiding now. He's an interesting place. San Francisco is full of waterways, bridges, bowling alleys police stations, everything you could imagine, a very target-rich, wonderful environment. Just tell me what kind of thing, don't name it, just what are you experiencing with regard to where he is? So, excuse
0: me if I can interrupt here. I'm just wondering, because today we have people that do past life regressions and they use hypnotherapy. Do you think you were uh unconsciously hypnotizing joe and these other people or you're just giving them some guidance
1: well we really don't know what hypnosis is that well i was <clears throat> i was definitely setting the stage for success so before he opened his mouth i had convinced him that the things he was going to say would be successful mm. and that made it that makes it much easier for him to describe this than in remote viewing we're always in our principal successes, we did do things like looking at Soviet weapons factory in Siberia, which paid our rent for another two decades, where Pat Price who was a psychic policeman, would remarkably accurately describe a weapons factory and a giant crane. And other things which were verified later by aerial surveillance.
0: Can, can you take a moment to tell us about the Patty Hearst incident and Pat Price's role in that?
1: Well, let me wind up with Joe first. Sure. So, so Joe, so Joe said, "Well, what I see is a building, uh, a long building with pillars in front. as pillars are white pillars, and it's dark behind them." And it looked like there a fountain in front of the building, a tall portion in front with the pillars, and long portion behind it. And that's what I got. And he drew a picture of that. And what's nice about working with Joe is he's an excellent uh, graphic artist. So he drew quite a nice picture of what turned out to be the Stanford, Stanford University Art Museum, which is exactly... A long row building with pillars in front of a fountain in the front of that, so he he basically made a drawing better than most people could do if they were standing in front of the building.
0: did he draw when he was in Vietnam? Would he sit there and sketch? Did he ever mention
1: that no i I think that the, I think that not to the best of my knowledge. I never heard of him say anything like that. I think that he was a I mean, he became a, se- a senior warrant officer, and I think he was in very active duty. I don't think he was drawing pictures, to the best of my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he has an innate talent. Um, as he in, in all the work we did, he was able to draw from his imagination, or his psychic sense, much more accurately than most people could do standing in front of the building. Mm. I mean, he was a spectacularly accurate in that sense. Now, I should say, to wind up with the Army, I showed six people, Hal and I showed six people, and each of them did six trials. So you would expect if they were matched against real targets, by luck, you would get a one out of six first-place matches if the, the guy drew six pictures, and there were six possible locations, and I asked you to match his pictures against the real places, and you said, I'm going to match this one against all of the others. Then you get one right by force. So instead of getting one right from the six people, so you'd expect with six people you get get six, six right by chance, we got 19 right by chance, which are odds of one in a million, which is to say we showed six people off the floor of the gymnasium and they did an ESP experiment with 36 trials significant of odds of one in a million. Do you recall what the other interviews were like?
0: So I'm just wondering how the interviews went when – that made you decide, yes, this person is psychic. What are some of the points of discussion that alerted you to the fact that this person might have psychic abilities?
1: People would always begin some sentence, well, I always something or other. I always knew when somebody was going to die. Uh, I always um, had some information I can't remember. This is now 50 years ago. This is now 50 years ago. So, well,
0: after, there was one character. Um, I can't think of his name, but uh, you asked him what his qualifications were. He was a scientist, I believe, and he said, "I was a demon outfielder."
1: Oh yeah, he he was yeah he was not an army guy.
2: <clears throat>
1: That's Gary Langford. Oh yeah, uh, he he was a. SRI engineer and Lockheed engineer at the time I was at Lockheed. So Gary, Gary was a straight up scientist and nobody knew he had anything to do with ESP, but he came into our lab and said, you know, I've, I've been interested in this all my life. And I said, well, what, what have you, have you ever done anything? Have you ever had any psychic experiences?" He said, well, in high school, uh, I was a baseball outfielder. They put me in the outfield because I always knew where the ball was going to be hit. So a very successful outfielder. So so, that's, so his success as an outfielder is what got him into our program. And later on, I was released from the lab where I you know, I know I spent. I basically spent a, a decade sitting at a table in the laboratory interviewing people. But after a certain period, I was released and I could travel around America and people in the lab would have to describe where I was. And Gary gave a remarkably accurate description when I was at the New Orleans Superdome. He he drew a uh, circular building with a dome and a parking space all around it And it looks like a, he said, looks like a flying saucer shining in the sun. And uh, he said to the interviewer, Elizabeth Rauscher, another physicist, "Do you think Russell's been abducted?" And Elizabeth said, "Well, you can never tell. Why don't you just describe what you see, and we'll see if he comes back." And his drawing, again, very greatly resembles the photographs that I was able to take of the Superdome in New Orleans, which unfortunately is one of these things where the outbound experiment, you wonder how could the outbound experiment screw up the experimenter, while all he's doing is standing in front of a building. Well, the way I screwed up this particular experiment is that it was at noon in New Orleans, and i look at this giant circular building with a dome, and I said it's 12 o'clock I'm standing in front of the New Orleans Superdome, and this looks like nothing so much as a UFO shining in the noonday sun. I thought it was a nice pictorial way of describing unambiguously what I was looking at. And Gary essentially repeated my exact words into his tape recorder when he was describing where I was. Oh, So you were audio recording these sessions, too. Oh, yes. Everything was audio recorded.
0: Do any of those audio recordings still exist to this day
1: that you know of? Well, you you can't see me on video. I was turning over to my closet where I have a whole bunch of audio tapes. uh, Still exist in my possession. Wow. Hmm. Okay. In our, in our, we just made a we just made a film called Third Eye Spies, where we recapitulate an experiment we did with Hella Hammond. Hella was a brought Hella was a dear friend of ours, a talented photographer, lovely, highly intelligent refugee from Germany, and. Uh, we were the cia wanted we had done, done we had done experiments with pat price a very psychic policeman and ingo swan who a very psychic artist and kit green who was our cia contract monitor that i'd like you to find somebody who's never done this before find a control person and i asked hella if she would like to be a psychic for the CIA and be paid to come to SRI to hang out with me and my family. And she thought that would be a hilarious thing to add to her repertoire of ways that she's earned a living. And she came up to SRI, and I showed her what we were doing. And in words of one syllable, she was the most statistically significant person ever to do remote viewing in our laboratory. So we brought in a psychic who had never done this, didn't know anything about remote viewing, was not a hidden psychic, as far as she knew, but she totally understood what to do. And day after day, she would exactly describe, and she could draw. Now,
0: now Pat Price, um, because today, using psychics. To help police find a Kidnap victim Or that kind of thing Is is more common but In the 1970s it was Fairly unheard of And here we Have Pat Price Um, What's the story of him And uh, the kidnap There was this famous kidnapping Of Patty Hearst back in the 70s and they end up Coming to, did they come to you to ask for Pat Price's help or how well, did
1: he? They, they came to the director, president of SRI. Mm-hmm. Now, Pat had heard about our work, even though it was a secret program, and I have I never learned how he heard about our work. Is there sort of a Scientology connection? Hell, uh, put off my colleague was a Scientologist and Pat Price was a Scientologist and, and, and so were some others I was not of course a Scientologist um, but Pat somehow learned what we were doing and volunteered to take part in the program and to digress what he what he took part in was describing a building that Kitts Green at the CIA gave us as a target and the building uh, the Price described was adjacent to Kitts' building with a NSA listening post where they were listening to Soviet messages bounced off the moon hmm. and it was a secret listening post from the NSA one of the most secret things in all of America at that time and Pat Price drew a map of what that looked like, given nothing to go on except the coordinates of the place. And he said, well, the real business is in the basement. And he then read off the name of the program and a number of other code words pertaining to what was going on in the basement. And those code words turned out to be correct and top secret. So in my film, The reason that I made a film is that Kit Green and our other contract monitor, Ken Kress, agreed to be on camera saying, yes, Price was able to describe top secret current programs in the basement of the NSA, not known to any other person. And that was the greatest bona fides that we could ever get for our program. That Price was actually... Christ was the only person we know who was able to read things, let alone top secret code words. So I'm guessing he somehow, before he
0: met you and got involved with the program, he must have psychically uncovered this secret uh, project you had going at SRI and then contacted you or this kind of thing. Well,
1: he came to us with a scrapbook full of pictures and stories of his psychic prowess. He was police commissioner in the city of Burbank, and he was very successful using his psychic prowess to find uh, criminals that they would run away. He would be able to tell, send the squad car through the streets of Burbank to find a frightened man running away, and he did that very successfully. And he laid out the scrapbook of successes when he came to SRI. And Hal uh, then, my colleague Hal put then gave him the coordinates of whatever it was Kit Green was looking for. And Price then went home and wrote us a long monograph about what's going on at this place as a secret government facility with roll-up doors, jeeps, large antennas, and in the basement, they had this top-secret program going on. So what he revealed was so secret that the NSA went back to CIA and collared our Fred Kit Green and said, what the hell are you doing sending these psychics in the most secret part of American intelligence, and we then had a visit from these angry NSA people, <laughs> together with the CIA people. And the NSA guy turned up Pat Price and said, "You didn't even describe what he, the target he had. You described our place, which next next door. Well, why did you pick our place?" He said, you don't Price said you don't understand how ESP works." In the psychic world, the more attention you have on hiding something, the more it shines like a beacon in psychic space. Mm, very interesting.
0: So then how did he, was he still working as a police officer and he's working at SRI and then
1: now he got We, a hired, hold of we this- hired him away. He, we immediately hired him. He was full-time with us for uh, the
0: next two years. And then, how did Patty Hearst uh, get? How did he get involved with that case?
1: Well, that would be 1974. You're stretching me back, probably in I'm going to make early early 74, maybe March of 1974. I'm going to guess is where Patty Hearst was kidnapped from her her apartment near Berkeley University, where she was a student. And nobody had any clues at all. Just a bunch of gangsters showed up with their automatic weapons and carried, beat up her boyfriend and shot up the place and carried her away. And that was it. She disappeared. And the police were very upset and her parents were upset. And this is the daughter of a very wealthy Hearst family. Published the examiner in San Francisco, mm. and they called Charlie Anderson, who's head of sRI and they they knew now I don't know how the Berkeley police knew that we had a secret program at sRI that, that would be nobody's ever asked me that exact question i I don't know. Some people were aware. For example, we hired Charlie Tart, who was a distinguished uh, psychology professor at UC Davis. He's interested in altered states of consciousness and ESP. But in order to work for us, you had to have a security clearance, of course. Mm-hmm. So Charlie gave a list of distinguished people who could be visited uh, by the FBI to see if Charlie was an honorable person who could be trusted. But the result of that, as will be obvious to anybody, is that you're revealing that Charlie Tart is going to work at SRI on some top-secret program that probably has something to do with consciousness or ESP. Mm -hmm. So at least one channel that led to the uh, disclosure of our program was the CIA trying to give a clearance to Shirley Tart and other people. But I know that this happened to Shirley because we talked to people who were baffled by what Why is Shirley Tart getting a secret clearance to SRI? Was his mild-mannered? guy interested in altered states of consciousness what could he probably possibly be doing top secret at sri yes and then so pat price drove with hal putoff and me to berkeley police station and as soon as he walked in price said i want to see your mug book which is a big loose leaf binder full of pictures of the usual suspects the people they had collected are people who were in jail or people they were looking for. And Hal and I and two detectives and, and Price stood by a big oak table as Price turned the pages of this binder and went page after page. And I put his finger on a guy and said, this is a ringleader. And his name was Donald DeVries. And there's also somebody named Wolf Lobo. And there was also Willie Wolf who was involved. So they now knew, had the name of Donald DeVries, who had been incarcerated and escaped from a minimum security prison and was on the loose. But the police knew who he was. And eventually... Duveen made himself known as part of the Symbionese Liberation Army, asking for food and money to feed the poor people of Oakland and Berkeley. So he surfaced and said that we, we, we've got the heiress here under in captivity, and if you ever want to see her again alive, we want to get want you to start to distribute. This is really a petition to uh the uh her family the hearst family to bring out some of their millions of dollars to feed the poor people of berkeley hmm. and of course nobody ever heard of the simianese liberation army and while the people while people were looking for Symbia on the map um the police were having to find ways to get food out and there was a there was a campaign and people were being fed on the streets of Berkeley as a result of this kidnapping. Oh, I never heard but, of that before. But Price said, well, uh, I don't know where she is right now, but I can tell you where the, state, where the kidnap car is. They drove north on Highway 101 and they parked the station wagon across from a diner next to two tall gas storage tanks. And one of the detectives said, well, I know where that is. I lived up by Vallejo. And they sent a squad car up there and found the station wagon. And there were still cartridges on the floor of the station wagon. So they knew that that was the, so they knew that was the kidnap car. Though of course, Patricia Hurst wasn't in it anymore. It took another year to find her. But Price was able unequivocally to find the kidnapped car. And SRI was given a commendation for the Berkeley Police Department for having been a significant contribution. Price was able to provide the first piece of hard data linking any people or a vehicle. To the kidnapping yes and
0: uh, we have about four minutes to the top of the hour um, now price at this time he is looked at as this wonderful psychic who is helping the police and and doing good for humanity then things change over time and he becomes something as he starts working for the CIA, it's like he was now regarded as somebody to somebody to be feared because of his power to see, you know, around the
1: world. Yeah, I would, I wouldn't say that that happened to Price. All of the people in the program, well, we're all the all the great psychics were eager to not be unique. They didn't want to be uh fingered. So we tried to make it clear that we had several dozen people who were able to look into the distance, look into the future with great accuracy. Price with Price and Ingo Swan and Hella were probably the most reliable and significant of those people. Price right after the Patricia Hearst case, Price was convinced by the CIA to leave SRI and move to Virginia and be on the payroll of the CIA full-time to be a contracted, contracted uh, psychic spy spy for the CIA. Mm -hmm. So I saw him only one time after he left SRI, and he was in his farmer outfit, bib-top overalls and a rake in his hand, pretending yeah. to be a farmer and by day he would be over at the headquarters uh looking at libyan and russian china in china and yeah. and he did that very successfully but wow. but people were not people were, were not afraid of the psychic prowess of Pricer. anyway none of our people were involved in dodgy or unsavory activities we're spying on the russians which was considered an honorable thing to be doing in 1974 yes all right we have to leave
0: it there uh let's pick it up on the other side of the break with uh, pat price uh living on his farm in virginia there you're listening to the other side of midnight.com with richard Hogan. my name is jonathan womack We'll be back after this short break.
4: The other side of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyper-dimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. (laughs)
2: Thank <laughs> you.
0: other side of midnight.com we're here with russell Targ talking about pat price and uh, his skill with remote viewing and how he got involved in the program and um before you continue russell i just want to ask elizabeth who's been very patient and quiet listening in the background <laughs> and i'm wondering what um your thoughts are on and what russell has related so far and you know, what you were doing back then at this time, if you were aware of the program, I, I guess it was made public in the 90s. And just, um yeah, you know, what would you like to add, Elizabeth?
3: I, I'm being quiet because I'm absolutely riveted. And everything I've ever read over the years, Russell has just brought to life. I mean, every name he's mentioned, I, I, I know of, but to, to actually hear it from, sorry, Russell, but the horse's mouth, I mean, it, it's, it's just utterly riveting i mean i I trained in remote viewing about 25 years ago i mean i to my knowledge i'm not using it but as we said the other day it's (laughs) where does the line end between dowsing and remote viewing and perhaps i'm doing both i'm beginning to wonder that myself now but um just amazing to hear all these these names brought to life and 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 hear it and hearing it not on the pages of a book. It's um, it's a real privilege, I
0: have to say. I understand. I feel the same way. So, Russell, um, you were just saying about Pat Price and he's gone to the CIA. You only saw him once after that, which uh, I think really sucks because you two had such a good working relationship. I mean, you were meant to be together and do this project, and then the CIA kind of took him away and things just kind of went south for, for
1: Pat. Yeah, I did most of the interviewing for the decade that I was with SRI. Because I was like the Oracle sitting up in my shielded room on top of SRI and people would come to me They what they wanted to do to learn how to be psychic. And of course, I'm making no claims at all for my ability. I just had from my association with Ingo Swan, I sort of figured out what to say to allow a person to release the psychic capabilities that they have. I mean, from, from the time of Padmasambhava and before, there's potentially was the a Hindu teacher uh, 200 years before Christ, and he wrote about people learning to quiet their mind, going to Samadhi and being able to look into the distance, look into the future, heal the sick and diagnose illnesses. And that's in the Sutras of Patanjali uh, written 200 years BC. So the the main thing that contribute is that this is not new age. The Patanjali gave you detailed instructions on how to quiet your mind if you're learning to be a deep meditator yeah I, I I wonder about
0: psychics of the past, say a few thousand years ago, you're born into let's say the south of France um, and you have these abilities, but society back then maybe frowned on these things and oh, you burn
1: you burn you as a witch. Yeah, exactly.
0: And we see this throughout history. So those poor bastards back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) So then we have the the people in the 1970s who have brought it back and they kind of made psychic spying cool again. And and the government has embraced it now. And now I I also uh, feel very... um, Sort of inspired by your work, because you know as you know I started going out when I was just a boy in nineteen sixty five I was scared to death and played dead, and that worked, except i I really made myself dead, and i i went uh oh i'm I'm dead, I screwed up, but i I realized the panic subsided, and I realized I'm okay, and this is actually me before I came here to this body. This is my natural state. So this is like a recess for me and off I go. So years go by. For 10 years, I thought I was alone. And then I was in a bookstore and I look and I see the cover of this book of a guy floating above his body. And I just was riveted and stunned because all of a sudden I was no longer alone. And that book was Journeys Out of the Body by Robert Monroe. And you worked with Robert back in the
1: day. You were friends with him, weren't you? Yes, I was. In fact, I drew a picture of his house uh, before we got there. Somebody asked me, um, do you have any idea where we're going? I can't remember who's from. I think his daughter, who we call Scooter, I now can't remember what her real name was. She said, "My father's a beautiful house. Do you have any idea what it looks like?" I said, "As a matter of fact, I do have, and I drew a picture of this pretty nice, warm, uh, white farmhouse up on pillars, and that looked very much like what what we found when we got there." So that gave that gave me the idea the psychic abilities may be so easy that even a scientist could do it.
0: Do you think you were picking this up from just hanging around these psychics? Did it rub off on you?
1: <laughs> it gave me permission. It gave I was just sort of in a psychic milieu I was with a lot of prodigious psychics and I was contributing to that as well. Yeah. So I was sort of pulling in this, like, it made it very easy to be a psychic with Hella and Ingo and Pat there doing this stuff every day.
0: Yeah, that's the first time I've heard the story about drawing his house. So you went to Virginia, and then you're going, how did this come about where you're going to Robert Monroe's house and you're in the car with his, his daughter who... Later on, after Robert passed, she took over the institute that he he started there. And, and she made, and
1: she married Bob, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. she married Joe. Yeah, married Joe.
0: Yeah. So how did you come to? You're in the car with his daughter going to his house. What? How did that come
1: about? I don't remember. Hmm. I, I I the we were both interested in meeting one another. And I don't know how the invitation came Do you remember, was that
0: before He started the institute Or did he have the He already
1: had the institute He had it,
0: okay As I remember in one of his books He talks about um, They were designing the architecture They're going to build this institute And he ends up Putting, if you look at pictures Of the Monroe Institute in Virginia There You see that the main building has this, um, what do you call it, Uh, it's a a tall cylindrical shaft um, and that was sort of his, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, where the psychic energy comes in. It's this geometric feature to the, the main building that is, it was kind of like a portal, and it was helping bring in this psychic energy to this place. And, well, he and, had
1: people in a wooden box, a lot like a coffin, and I took part. I gave a lecture there once on remote viewing, as we did it at, at SRI. We were not in competition with him, of course, because he had this uh audio feedback, everything, Yes. Which is unlike anything we were doing. But I, I was interested in having a trip in the box. And um, Did you do that? Yeah. And Skip Atwater led me on a trip, an out-of-body trip. Now, I was already familiar with, with out-of-body experiences. And he sort of led me to an out-of-body experience. And I visited a friend of mine, a young, young woman. And I was able to see her situation, uh, what she was wearing, uh, what her house looked like, and the fact that at that moment she was leaving her house with a briefcase going off to work. And I was able then to corroborate that what I had seen was great accuracy in this out-of-body experience or remote view experience. I don't have to call this out-of-body experience because it was a visual experience like other remote viewings that I'd done. But this was this is a particularly crystal clear clear. I mean, now mm. fifty years later I can remember exactly what the place looked like and what she was wearing. And what it reminds me of right now is precognitive dreams, which also have a unique crystal clarity. Uh like the uh, HemiSync provides you.
0: Yes, yeah. Because with me, it was it was different. I go to bed, I relax, uh, my heart slows down, and I wait for these vibrations to come, and that lasts a minute or so. And it feels like your body's shaking, but it's it's not vibrating. It's your energy is speeding up so that you can detach. From your body and and leave. So there was a physicality to my OBEs where I actually lift out of my body and I I can stand by the bed and look down at myself and experience dual consciousness being in two places at the same time. And um, but what you experienced um, at TMI uh is more like a remote viewing where you don't take your astral you know you're not taking your astral body
1: out you're just sending your mind there so you're familiar with this projection of the astral body by you know, Muldoon? Now, uh, no i have right? not
0: read i have not read well, that was a
1: big book you you can, you can can you see me on the yeah i can see you so my camera is live mm-hmm. so i have this book that was written in the 1920s by Sylvan Sylvan Muldoon and Harewood, tough name, Harewood Carrington in 1929, Projection of the Astral Body, where he describes, you should read that, because this is an early, early discussion of astral body and how he would travel around his house. Out of body. Hmm. I will check that out. About 1927, I believe. Now, the theme of tonight's show
0: is indeed primitive dreaming, and uh we have some of your items posted on the show page. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to those? Your item number one is. The maybe cover- we
1: should get Little Elizabeth describe what she, what she's doing. Uh, maybe you heard enough for, of me and then I'm ha- I'm I'm happy to talk about remote view in my favorite subject The most interesting thing the most interesting thing I know is that we're able to see into the distance and see into the future and our future vision is every bit as good as our real time vision. It's just as easy to describe what's gonna happen next week as it is I, I have a, a trapped animal here. That's, that's I legit. see your
0: dog, yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, have you had a precognitive dream either when you were a child or as an adult? No. no. <laughs> that's the
3: answer to that. <laughs> no. Um, I've had a lot of things happen but not not dreaming, no. I I just no. It doesn't Are, speak to me.
0: Have you had the psychic experiences when you're awake?
3: I mean, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, well I
3: trained. So, so I trained. Actually, remote viewing wasn't the first thing that that, that I did. I mean, I, when I was a child, I I played with spirit children, so I was obviously aware of other. Uh. Dimensions, even then, when I was three, four years old, um, but then when I was fourteen my my first teachers came along and they trained me in psychometry, so I was able to read read objects and they started me off with holding rocks um, <laughs> so, and what
0: is psycho what is psychometry
3: so so basically you you are given an object, you hold an object, and you're able to um, discern from that object wh- where it came from or, or what energy and information it carries so th- they, they first handed me a rock and I thought this is ridiculous I can't do this this is you know then they said close your eyes and focus on this muscle so I closed my eyes and I, I said I can't see anything everything it's all black and then I thought well it's not actually quite black it's black oh no there's lots of blue and there's some black but oh I can see orange flowers and oh there's water and they said stop stop you just described exactly where that rock came from it it was from underneath there where their boat was was moored um, mm. and and the, the the shock. I mean I was 14 so the shock of that was wow you know <laughs> um and well, then your
1: experience gave... was visual you were able. You were able at,
3: to at, see that. Well, see the. not just visual, because they then gave me a second rock, and um, and I thought my you know logical mind says no, there's no way I can tell the difference between two rocks. That's ridiculous. And they said, do it again. Close your eyes. Focus on this muscle. And I did. And I said, oh, oh, I can see, I can see bars. Oh, wait a minute. It's like a prison. My, and I could actually see bars, and I, and I, and and well, wait a minute. This is a prison, but it's not pe- a prison to keep people in. It's a prison to keep it's a prison to keep people out. And then I, I could feel the fear at that point. And I said, the, there there are, there are there are bodies everywhere. There, there's there's death, and 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 they said stop. And they said, do you, do you know where this rock is from, and I said, of course yeah, I was 14, and they said that rock is actually from the walls of Masada. And 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 as a not very bright 14-year-old, I said, what's what's Masada? And it it actually was from the fort of Masada, uh, where I'm presuming other people, everyone knows about Masada and the fort and how everyone in the fort. A committed suicide and uh, they all killed themselves um, to prevent when the Romans actually reached Masada, reached the top of the fort, they built a huge, um it was like a ramp, wasn't it? A very, very long ramp and raided Masada. Everyone was already dead. And so that left a
0: psychic imprint into the stone.
3: Either, well, I don't know, perhaps Russell can answer this. Either carrying the memory of that, or I'm using the stone to connect to the location. So I don't know one or the other.
0: What do you
1: or think, either. Russell? There are other there are other problems with doing experiments like like that. The, the the first place I would look to get the and I'm not at all doubting your psychic abilities here. But the, the most readily available source of the information is the mind of the person who gave you the rock. So uh, a problem uh-huh. not not with your ability, but the problem with the experiment is it is not a double-blind experiment. Yes. So what well, one of the sources of information is the person who gave you the rock, and another more subtle source of information is the feedback you got at a later time and we'll, we'll talk about that later because I often have or let's say occasionally have very sharp dreams of things that I'm going to be shown the next day so the thing is not, is not chosen yet it's like the front page of the New York Times or what's on television the next hour And I will have a dream built around this very unusual thing. And then I will see it. It will be presented to me usually on my video monitor that I'm sitting in front of right now, a 28-inch monitor. And I get up in the morning, I grab a cup of coffee and turn on my screen to see what's on the front page of the New York Times. And occasionally the thing on the New York Times is some weird thing that I had a dream about. So Mm. it's it's very hard to tell. In a situation where the feedback is not controlled. Uh And this, this this isn't a fault with your experiment. It's an open question in ESP research. It's a very, very difficult question as we see people with better and better psychic ability, they have more and more interesting places where they can get the information. So in words of one syllable, the question that people worry about now is what's the target? Is it something you see in the future? Is it something in the mind of the experimenter? Or is it the place for the, where the rock actually came from? And I have no opinion about about that, but but, uh, but you you asked me the exact question. Doesn't that show that Elizabeth was able to see Masada? And the answer is well, uh, it doesn't actually. It could be, could be, but you have to you have to do more thoughtful experiments to show that she's actually seeing that place. And, and that, not reading the mind of the person who gave her the rock. Is that's that what... right. Or, or, or my current interest. I'm interested in precognition. Can you can you see what's going to happen in the stock market or who's going to win the ball game? Uh, where do you, where do you look to get that information? And a number of people. We did that very it, briefly. We did that very successfully. The forecasted change in the silver market and made a quarter of a million dollars uh, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So for a, a while, ESP was real as people were pondering what we had done. This is after after SRI. And, and it's unclear. I, I'll tell you later how we did that. But it's always unclear. We know that you can... What it appears that we were doing is reading the big board at the commodity exchange because we're, we're selling silver short, uh, rising market, and doing that successfully. So it looks like somebody's sitting in our lab reading the big board at the commodity exchange. But we know that that's very, very hard to do. You can't read anything except for past price. Um,
0: Well, we have about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. I I wanted to throw out a recent experiment I did because I've been doing these experiments myself uh, since uh, I was a boy going out. And, um, you know, I'm not a double blind this or that. I was just doing this uh, off the cuff. And, um, in fact, Russell, I, I entered your dream one night when you told me no, you didn't want to do the Limitless Mind documentary. And uh, so I went into your dream. (laughs) And the next day you called me and it changed your mind. But um, here's an example of a recent experiment. Uh, If you go to my items uh, on the show page, it would be item number five, number number four. As a video editor, I spend a lot of time surfing these sites with stock video and stock audio. And uh, one of these gentlemen who he does what I do, he's a 3D artist. And um, number four is just a picture of one of his stock video 3D animations that I I I also saw an, an ancient uh, an episode of Ancient Aliens. I, I go, oh hey, that's that's Christian's one of Christian's clips, and uh, <laughs> I use about a dozen of his clips in this show I'm doing with Maria Wheatley. It's a documentary on Stonehenge. So I'm sitting here and I thought, you know, out of Christian's 650 stock video 3D animations that he's made, and they're they're nice and stylish and he's just got a real nice um way about him and he has nothing on state parks you know i'm immersed in arches park uh here in, in the southwest which has been um put forth as interesting erosion and i know differently it's i uh these this is an ancient race that has uh, sculpted all these monuments and and it's uh you know a hundred million years old and, and all this is going on. So I, I said, I'm going to go into Christian's dream. I don't know who he is or where I, I don't know anything about him. I've never emailed him or I, I've downloaded his videos anonymously. So he just, there's no way he knows who I am. So uh, I go into his dream and I ask him to do an animation um, where Maria is meditating in <clears throat> at Park Avenue. Park Avenue is sort of the center of Arches Park and seems to be even the center of the planet when it comes to these portals. So I asked him to do something uh, to put Maria in Arches Park. And uh, then I kind of forgot about it. And, you know, I'm busy editing and doing my thing and, and then um, and I kind of get this ping a couple of months later. I guess that was uh, about January, you know, a couple of months ago. And I go on Christian's page there with all his videos and I'm scrolling through. He's got, he's got two new videos. And <clears throat> the first video <clears throat> is my item number five. And this is what Christian made. It's a woman <clears throat> meditating at Park Avenue in Arches Park and here we see the courthouse towers uh, Park Ave on the left and on the right and this is where I've been immersed for the last few years so this tells me that I was successful in, in uh, the power of suggestion where I go in somebody's dream and ask them to quit smoking or this kind of thing and so um, I, I consider that experiment a success Uh, With that, we're approaching the bottom of the hour. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name's Jonathan Womack. We'll be back after this short break.
2: Welcome back to the
0: other side of midnight. I'm here with Russell Tart and Dowser Elizabeth Brown. We're waiting for Maria Wheatley to check in with us. Uh, she, she lives near Stonehenge and it's possible she overslept.
2: So
0: <laughs> if you're sleeping, uh, Maria, I'm going to enter your dream here psychically and ask you to wake up and and get some coffee going and <laughs> <to laughs> come join us on the show so until then um russell would you like to continue with your precognitive dreaming i you sent some pictures
1: uh to share with our audience would you like to talk about that well just comment on what you said before it's so hard to know what you're looking at the dog you saw walking through my office it, is actually my 15 pound Siamese cat. Oh, <laughs> my, my dear, my dear friend Zeno, has become my constant companion lately. <laughs> yeah, I think cats are psychic, and
0: you know there was an incident with Robert Monroe that resonates with me because I've had these time travel episodes where I went back to help myself, and he had a similar one where. In his first book, he gets out of his body and something jumps on his back and freaks him out. And he gets back in his body and the next night he goes out, something jumps on his back and he freaks out. And the third night, he's really freaked out now because this thing gets on his back. He can't get it off. He's crying and sobbing praying for someone to come help him and a light appears on the other side of the room and comes toward Robert and it's a figure and the figure reaches behind Robert and lifts cat off of Robert's shoulder. The cat had passed away and still swept on the bed with daddy and mommy. And what happened was in his third book, about 30 years later, Robert goes out of body He gets a signal. He follows it. It's him 30 years ago, crying and sobbing with a cat on his back. So Robert reaches around to him 30 years ago, pulls the cat off Robert's back and shows it to him. And Robert quiets down and gets back in his body. So, this confirmed that what I was doing, going back to help myself, was, was real. And, um, yeah. So what do you think about that, Russell?
1: I think cats are very psychic. I, I believe that. I could be reading on the couch where I spend a lot of time, and I can just think, gee, it's, a, it's an hour now. I haven't seen Zeno. Zeno, are you around And within a couple of minutes, I hear his little bell jingling, and he comes and pounces on my belly, and then I know where he is. But I wanted to ask Elizabeth a question. As a healer, uh, on on my telephone, I get many, many notices these days about the hazards of COVID vaccine. It is hazardous to your health. Can have all sorts of bad effects. Like giving you shingles, which I I did have shortly after getting a my fourth COVID vaccine. I got shingles, no doubt about it. And I got I got better pretty quickly, but I've no no doubt that something like a weakened immune system set me up to get shingles. I wonder if you've thought about that.
3: <laughs> if I could just say I I don't. Um, I'm not actually a healer I I don't actually do any healing myself the way that I use dowsing is to identify causative contributory and trigger factors behind either a specific health condition or a set of symptoms that have no orthodox label Um, and I specialize in cancer so I'm able to tell somebody exactly what caused their cancer their, their own recipe and it varies from every everybody is is different um i it, it's going to be very controversial um because i recently did a a 10-hour webinar on the so-called pandemic and the so-called vaccines they aren't actually vaccines by the official definition of a vaccine and um I can, from all the research around all from around the world, and um, this is research from from doctors and scientists.
1: Well, this program loves controversy, so you should feel free to
3: say <laughs>
1: whatever you feel. If you can shed some light on the propaganda, it would be very interesting to know what the truth is. It's,
3: first of all, okay, um, the, the reason I was being a little bit cautious because after doing it, this 10-hour webinar, um, I was um, under quite serious attack afterwards, uh, warning me off. But uh, that, things have now moved on, and of course, and now that most of the world is waking up to the horrors of the vaccine, uh, the death rate is up in every single country that gave the vaccine but there's some pretty horrific ingredients um in this this jab i'm going to call it a jab um which would which would absolutely compromise an immune system um one of them which has actually been proven in laboratory experiments is is graphene oxide which leads to the to the ruler blood clumping effect and many many other things but it does it does shut down the immune function um what graphene oxide doesn't like is um is, is glutathione so antioxidants 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 that's you really need to focus on that get the graphene oxide out um and get the anti- antioxidants in that would be my, my my first comment on that i haven't had I haven't had a single vaccine, and nor would I now knowing what the ingredients are. And it's not it's not just um, just the toxins, as in metals. And there are uh, there are other metals in there, like like tungsten. What um, what what also concerns me is that um, in one of the pharmaceutical companies, that they're based on. Um, genetically modified chimpanzee cells. So there's a lot of animal DNA in there, which you really do not want in your body either. Does that go a, a small way to answering your question?
1: Well, there's certainly a lot. Of, <clears throat> there's certainly some literature now that there are significant number of cases of shingles turning up. Do, yeah. do you know anything about cancer being stimulated by? The COVID vaccine.
3: Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, a, a, according to the groups of doctors who have done, and I've been researching this now for two and a half years, um, th- according to the doctors now, what they're seeing is that there is a huge acceleration in the speed of the growth of the cancer response. So you might have stage one cancer, and then two weeks later you've got stage four cancer. Um, it, it, it's a hugely, hugely fast growth. Um, uh, but, but I have a different way of looking at cancer It's, it's uh, to me a cancer is part of the body's defense system uh, but when your body is under attack like that this is why um, the body produces this cancer response um, but, but yes absolutely this is what doctors are seeing all around the world
1: what can a person do if they feel like they're under attack from this cancer?
3: Depends what caused it. That would be my answer. I mean, if they had a cancer, if they had cancer, I need to know the underlying conditions that would lead to that in the first place. Um, I mean, there are very roughly, there are three main groups. So um, it's either a crisis of toxicity, which have vaccine obviously would give you a crisis of nutritional deficiency which having those toxins in the body and um, blocking receptor sites would stop the, um, uh, new, the nutrition that you're getting either from supplementation or your food from being either bioavailable or, or absorbed into the body and thirdly and and this is one of the most important underlying factors is actually either a mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual uh, state, um, let's say sort of uh, inappropriate conditioning and under that heading I would also, I would also put things like um, uh, bereavement and um, uh, suppressed stress so those are the three very big groups and underneath that the subgroups Um, there are many hundred, depending on the lifestyle and the conditioning and the nurturing and the nature of the person involved. And cancer is complex. It's it's never going to be one causative factor. It's a complex um, combination of several. So when I'm doing a cancer case, there may be five causative factors, um, two contributory factors, and one trigger factor. So that's sort of the, where I start from, and then we identify exactly what those are. And the benefits, of course, are instead of managing symptoms or being given carcinogenic orthodox treatments, um, it means that you can actually address the symptoms and mitigate them or remove them or, or address them in terms of, uh, for example, giving the right nutrition, has to be the right nutrition.
1: What do you think about that, Russell? I think it's very interesting. When you're talking about antioxidants, are you thinking about things like vitamin C?
3: Um, I I would probably steer clear of vitamin C because um, 90% of vitamin C isn't actually vitamin C. Um, These days it's manufactured, as synthetic in a laboratory, usually made with um, genetically modified corn bacteria. Um, When we say vitamin C, I'd want to see the vitamin C complex that has all seven or eight compounds in there, which is which is from a food or a plant source, this is the most important thing. It cannot be an isolate, static isolate. It has to come from a food or a plant source. So if you're getting a nutritional supplement, it has to be um, uh, there with all, not just say the vitamin C, for example, but with all the cofactors. Because if you don't have the cofactors, it's not available to the body. It's not bioavailable to the body. And what happens is the vitamin C isolate, goes around the body looking for the cofactors. So it can be processed by the body and be useful to the body. So there are (laughs) really caveats to every nutritional compound. So So eat some
0: blueberries is what you're saying.
3: Wild blueberries. Yes, but if you want if you want a concentrated form then you then you look for a supplement that the ingredients are wild blueberries or um you know, kiwi or broccoli or and and you can get these supplements that that are actually the essence of this of the of the food um but but in powder form or sometimes in liquid form as well but, but there's no point if you start putting nutrition into the body that is um, synthetically produced in a laboratory, more often than not from um, from petrochemicals. That's just going to make things worse. And this is why you have people coming out and say, "Oh, well, nutrition doesn't work. You know, this doesn't work. That uh, I've taken this vitamin and that doesn't work." No, because they're taking the wrong form. It's a huge market. It's it's a it's a, it's a very lucrative market worldwide.
1: That's very interesting. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> where where could we where could we read more?
3: Where can we read more? I I just well um I will give you, because I don't want to do any advertising on, on on this program, but I will give you a nutritional company that all its products are made from organic uh, or biodynamic food um, or plant sources um, that are very high quality.
1: Hmm. Okay. John, can she tell us who that company is? Well, I think that's for the after party.
0: I don't know. You, you can go ahead and advertise if you if you like, Elizabeth. That's fine.
3: They're nothing to do with me. I just didn't know what your rules and regulations are. Um, there is a company there in America. They're actually based in Virginia. They're called Touchstone. They have extremely high-quality uh, products. Um, I've never known any any uh, nutritional products quite like these touchstone essentials which is all antioxidants uh, that's probably where i would start but they also explain what i just explained to you very very quickly and uh, very briefly They will go through each product and explain why they do what they do, why they don't use isolate. So you'll never see um, vitamin C 1000 milligrams, you'll just see vitamin C and the the ingredients are are listed. Um, It's the same with vitamin D as well. Most people taking 90% of vitamin D is complete and utter garbage. It's usually made from um, lanolin, from sheep's wool um, often with the um, um, inherent toxins from what sheep sheep are exposed to, sheep dips and, and chemicals what touchstone do, they have a product which is a, a vitamin D product but it's made from um, m- mushroom type of particular type of of mushrooms so it's bioavailable to the body vitamin d i would never take in huge massive quantities people think oh yes have you know thousand IU's or ten thousand i of, of vitamin d no it's what vitamin d is is actually a steroidal hormone and when you flood your body with a steroid steroidal hormone and those sort of quantities, you're putting more stress stress and pressure on the body uh, and particularly the liver that has to detox it. Um, what you need is something, again, that's bioavailable to the body that's, that's
2: um,
3: in accord with the body's working and um, quality doses that are bioavailable, not massive doses that you have to detox half of it. Steroidal hormone will also... Um, unbalance the body because you, you have to it, it has to process it and it's putting more stress on it on the body to do that so smaller amounts that are bioavailable the so, so touchstone also do a vitamin D um, it's called um it's called Super Greens Plus D. But they explain all this on their website. They're very, very good at doing that and all the reasoning why why they do, what they do, and why they do it.
1: That's very interesting. You see, for a scientist, it's a nice example of how do you know when you know something? You see something come by and say, that's a beautiful dog, and then you learn it's a cat. You're very disappointed. <laughs> Similarly, you read, you read in the paper, um, it's very important for elderly people to take this um, vaccine because uh, COVID is particularly bad or dangerous for elderly people. And on the other hand, you read that the vaccine is particularly dangerous for elderly people because it uh, weakens their immune system. So what one side says, The vaccine is important because it will save your life from this disease. On the other hand, people are saying you shouldn't take it because it will kill you. Now, you would think in the 21st century or 23rd century, so I've been asleep for 200 years, (laughs) the the 23rd century, we still can't decide whether a popular vaccine on the market is important because it will kill you if you don't have it. Or it might kill you if you do have it. You would think that by now we'd be able to solve a question like that.
3: Oh, we can solve it very easily. Um, all I would say is follow the money.
2: <laughs> yeah. Follow yeah,
0: the money. I, I take uh, a wonderful supplement. I have arthritis, advanced arthritis, and uh, this company is called Metagenics.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And it's a basically a, a fish oil thing where I've had fish oil before, but not like this. This stuff is as soon as you open the bottle, you you understand something is different because you can. The smell is just incredible, and it, it's wonderful smell. And you take one of these gel caps, and you can feel the concentration is off the scale because I've taken these other fish oil pills and you don't know anything's happening. You wonder if something, if it helps or you just kind of take it out of good faith. Whereas this, this metagenics, these gel caps, you can feel them. Oh my God. Like it's honey going into your joints. You you can actually feel it working. It's, it's, you notice the difference right away,
1: or if you're a psychic, you can tell just by holding the bottle. <laughs>
3: <Absolutely>. <laughs> and if you're a doser, then you calibrate the bottle. How much is this in in my best interest? Um, or how much is it to my detriment to take this supplement? How much is it? How much is it? This product in my best interest and calibrate it on a scale of one to ten or as a percentage. How much is as a supplement to my detriment? That's and, interesting and, because
0: I I take it says to take two a day, but I, I take one because that seems to work for me. Just taking mm-hmm. one.
3: So. Again you can you can douse on the optimal dosage. What's the optimal dosage today, this week, this month, how long? That's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm using dowsing for also. Hmm. And I would never leave, le- never, ever leave a supplement, you know, just to have faith in it. <laughs> um, because the companies, they excel at, at marketing. And um, ruthlessly, my, uh, the, the foolproof way is to dance. Then you're getting the truth. As long as your mind is programmed for only the truth only now,
0: When you say dowsing are you talking about you're holding that rod in your hand and you put the rod near the bottle of uh, vitamins or how does the dowsing come into play?
3: Well, well whatever tool you use I mean I do use rods because I was taught with rods in America by the way in, in Virginia um, by an amazing man who, who teaches Native Americans their lost arts he told me to douse in one night um so i using rods or some people use a pendulum um for me, I don't need the bottle i don't need I don't need the object there i I just extend consciousness um to connect with with the product and and douse that way
1: good for, good for you. I think that's a straight path i can I can tell you an experiment that's a little bit like what John is doing and what you're doing um um, in 1982, Hella and I were both getting ready to leave the SRI program as it was becoming more and more applied, find this airplane, uh, find this kidnapped person, and that's, that's okay with us. We're in favor of that, but neither of us were interested in perfecting our ability to become psychic spies for the CIA, that's not what we were interested in doing. But our CIA contract monitor, Kit Green, asked Kella and me if we uh, could describe what Premier Brezhnev's office looked like in the Kremlin. He said, neither of you have ever seen his office, right? And we both laughed and said, no, we've never, never been to the Kremlin. Have no idea what the Kremlin's office looked like. Do you know what it looks like? And he laughed and said, no, no, I haven't been to the Kremlin either. Uh, so we agreed. Our, our target was simply, tell us what Brezhnev's office looks like in the Kremlin. That, that was the targeting instructions. So I sat down in my easy chair, held lay laid down on a couch. And I said, uh well, quiet your mind, we're, go, we're going to the Kremlin today. And she said, yeah, I understand that. I said, well, once you're in the Kremlin, what do you see? And she said, well, I'm walking down a corridor, and there are beautiful red draperies hanging from both sides of the wall as I walked down the corridor, and this crystal chandeliers overhead. And I see and, and then what happens? She said, well, at the end of the corridor, there's a door covered with red leather, and the red leather is held in place by large brass upholstery tacks. And I said, do you think are a target? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what's going on inside? She said, I can't see. The door is closed. I said, okay, I'll open the door. So I said, I said, the door is open now. Can you see what's inside? And she said, No, it's dark. It's they're ten, they're eight hours ahead of us. I said, Okay, I'll turn, I'll turn on the lights. Now we can, now we can see there. And she said, Oh, now I, yeah, I see the large wooden desk with a glass plate on the top of it. And that's on the right as you walk in. On the left side, the big window is open, looking out at uh red square i can see the famous saint basil's church with the with the colored domes outside and and behind the desk there's a doorway right in the wall right behind the desk and i said oh let's open the door and see where the doorway leads so you catch on i'm sort of traveling with her It's not a out-of-body experience exactly, but I'm turning on the lights for her and opening doors. And then we go down this passageway, and she said, well, it looks like a big computer room on the right. There's just banks of computers. And I began to feel frightened. I was aware that the rush is the very instant, the psychic stuff. And I told her, I think that they've noticed we're here. I think it's time to get the hell out of here. We've seen enough. Let's leave. And I terminated the experiment. Hmm. Two years later, after I left SRI, I was invited by the Soviet Academy of Sciences to lecture in the Kremlin on the unclassified parts of the work we did, work we had published in Nature magazine or the Proceedings of the Institute of Electrical Engineers And I gave a nice talk there I uh, I Let's could.
5: hold it
0: there Russell because we're, we're at the top of the Hour and uh, When we come back I'm going to open up the Phone lines and if you'd like To talk to Russell or Elizabeth If you have a question or an Anecdote you want to add uh, You can call us at area code 917 889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. We will be back after this short break.
1: Is everybody all right?
0: We're we're fine. Uh, Keith is having a technical difficulty with the commercial break, so uh, what we're going to do is um, Maria Wheatley has joined us for the third hour, and uh, welcome, Maria. Can you hear me? Okay.
6: Yes, I can hear you fine. Hopefully, you can hear me.
0: You sound wonderful. Uh, How's the weather over there in uh, UK? Cold. (laughs) (laughs) Same here, although it's getting warmer. Spring is in the air.
6: Yeah, it certainly is. It's great. It's great to hear you all. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Yes, we've been having a a wonderful discussion with Russell and Elizabeth. And um, as I said before the break, we're uh, going to take some calls and... When Keith gets situated, I guess there's a caller on the line. So um, why don't we go ahead and let's see. We left off. Where did we leave
1: off? That was Russell. I, I was in the Kremlin. Yeah. And they asked me, thank you for your, I gave a talk about remote viewing and how we could see anywhere we wanted to look. I didn't tell them we had looked into their weapons factory. They wouldn't like that. (laughs) But I said, what we learned is there are no secrets anymore. A person can focus his energy and describe whatever he wants anywhere on the planet, present time or in the future, and there's a huge rattling of teacups in the audience as people took aboard in the Soviet Union in 1982 that there are no secrets anymore. Well, you may
0: recall, Russell, I asked you about uh, whether you thought she was tracked because uh, when I'm out and about, sometimes I deal with some nefarious characters and I make an effort not to leave any kind of psychic trailer imprint that can be tracked back to my, you know, little waterbed space, which is my kind of sacred area there. And I wondered if, Someone had tracked Hela. She She's uh, looking into the Kremlin and into uh, this office here. And I just wondered if one of the psychic Russian spies had detected her and then followed, tracked her back to SRI. But you don't think that's the case,
1: right? No, they knew about SRI. My concern and my feeling is that they detected our presence inside the computer room at the Kremlin. I had a lot of clearances up the top clearance, up the top secret clearance, but I had no clearance to be in the Russian computer room. So two years later, they asked me, is there anything you'd like to see as long as we're here in the famous Kremlin? And I said, yes, I'd like to see uh, Prime Minister Brezhnev's office I don't need to see the prime minister, but I'd very much like to see where he works. So they walked me down the hall. I could see the hanging brocade that Hella described. I got to the red leather door, and I actually heart skipped a beat. I was sh- totally shocked when I saw the red leather door held in place with a brass upholstery tax, exactly as she described. And there it was in front of me. They opened the door, and I could see his big desk on the right and St. Basil's out the window on the left. I can't remember now whether there was a door behind his desk. I simply can't. Maybe if somebody would hypnotize me, I could tell whether there was a door. But I, I was leading a whole parade of Soviet military people so i wasn't asking i was trying to avoid problems thank you very yeah. much for letting me see where he was i'm very happy thank you thank you let's get out of here yeah so, your okay. hair must have been
0: standing up on end
1: right even more than usually <laughs> uh, so anyway it was a totally successful experiment on her part
0: well, uh, we have a caller on the line. Keith, are you there? Uh, can you bring the caller in What's The status there?
1: Oh, sorry about that. Um, the caller we had, Jeff, he's not, he's not on the line anymore or
0: oh, okay. Yeah, we have right. another,
1: we have another caller, but I think he's, they're here to listen. I wasn't able to screen them yet. Uh, Give me a few seconds. I'll be back with you. Talk a bit.
0: Okay. Well, in the meantime, um, Maria, would you like to tell us about uh, your experience with? You've been dowsing your whole life. Your father was a famous dowser in the UK, and you're following in his footsteps. Now, you, how do you use dowsing?
6: Well, dowsing can be used on many different levels. It can be used for finding substances in the ground, as we know, such as underground water, or it can be used on more of a spiritual level to find lost objects in the landscape, for example. So you have one branch of dowsing that is deemed quite masculine where you just ask a question of a dowsing instrument, such as a pendulum or an L-rod. You're asking questions to ascertain an answer, or you can do it in a more feminine, what's called sacred spiritual manner, where you ask the landscape, should you be dowsing it? And you're always asking the pendulum before the question, can I, should I, may I ask this question? So there's two different styles of dowsing, if you see what I mean. One that's very direct, That in a way is more like remote viewing where you just look into something because Mm. you feel that you want to. Or the other side of the dowsing, which I do, is you ask the landscape or the ancestors or whatever it is you're going to be looking for, should Mm. you actually be doing that?
0: Now, Elizabeth, are you a psychic dowser or which branch are you?
3: Oh, what a question. Um, No. I'm, I'm going to put a third branch in Maria <laughs> um, I I, don't, I mean so, what does psychic mean? That, that was what I'd say I'm firmly though feet on ground and what I believe we're doing is totally in accord with quantum physics we're extending consciousness accessing um, the quantum field the field of information um, and and um Retrieving information. That, that's how I would um, describe what I'm doing. So I'm either, I'm either accessing the, the field, the quantum field, or the personal field of the client when I'm uh, doing their health. Well, when I discovered, for
6: example, the elongated skulls of
3: Stonehenge,
6: it was direct with, I mean, we can say consciousness and things like that. I'm, I'm a bit more of a kind of druid uh, to, a, to a certain regard. And When I discovered those skulls, it was because the landscape called to my dancing techniques. Mm. So it, I don't go out there into the kind of background consciousness, it's waiting for the, for those ancestors to connect and recently I've done just uh, another very major find in the ancestral landscape through, uh, through the energies of the land contacting me because I've got, uh, you know, I've been to these places like Stonehenge and you know, Downstone for most of my life, I'm the most experienced in the genetic system of earth energies. So I listen to the call of the
4: land
0: Well, that's very similar to what where i 'm at. i 'm immersed uh, spiritually in um, Arches Park, and I cannot sit still and let this interesting erosion miss and the conditioning that uh, the people look at these monuments as interesting erosion is. Um, Well, it doesn't sit well with me, and I feel them calling to me at this point in my life. You know, I first saw this when I was a boy, and I went on to write uh, about it in my fictional novel, Old Souls, which is about Mars. The Martians escape the, uh, the planet's destruction, and they land on Mars. This is 65 million years ago. They land in Montana. They build these monuments and all these underground cities and all this stuff. And then here we are now years later, and um, I see Arches Park, and I just feel these people are calling to me in a spiritual way so that um, I can help uh, dispel that myth and get people to see what's there. I mean, all, all the libraries... There's temples inside these monuments, there's artifacts waiting for us, there's all this wonderful stuff waiting for us. And yet, today, for example, I watched um a Discovery Channel uh documentary on Alulu, Saudi Arabia, which is another area that's exactly like Park uh you know, Arches Park in, in uh Utah. And it's the same people, and it's the same timeline. This goes back 150 million years, and um, and yet the documentary is about all these professors and archaeologists, and they're converging on Alulu to look at these um, these things that are they're kind of like the Nazca lines or something. There's the there's triangles and things, and there are They're about 2,500 years old. So the irony of these people walking around in the middle of these monuments, and they're looking at something that's 2,500 years old. Meanwhile, right at their back, where they could reach out and touch it, right at their back is a cliff mural with all these hieroglyphics that, to me, are like a neon sign on the Vegas Strip. And yet these people are completely blind to these magnificent structures and monuments all over and they're looking at something that was made yesterday and and they're, they're they're standing among these monuments that are millions of years old and I'm thinking how the heck do we get you know how did we get here and how do how do I get people to see so what I'm going to do is take stills from that show so that These folks can see it, and I'm going to send it to these uh, professors and archaeologists and say, hey, look around you. Open your eyes. Look at this stuff. Forget about what was made yesterday. This is what we need to – we need some linguists to figure out the language that is all over these murals. It's all here waiting for us. Let's get this done. So that's where I'm at. So I can relate to you, Maria, where you feel the land calling to you.
6: Absolutely. I think you, what you need to do, Jonathan, is not just go to any archaeologist, but go to what's called a landscape archaeologist, because a landscape archaeologist looks at the wider environment rather than just one part of it. I've studied uh, landscape archaeology with uh, Lisa Brown, for example, at Oxford. It's a particular branch of astrology, You'll get, um, uh, rather archaeology. You'll get more answers from them. And also, when I was at Chaco Canyon, it's amazing, sacred site, as you know, in, in America. And it's very similar to some regards to sites over here because you have the Great North Road coming from what's called an emergence point. And that Great North Road is like an emerging point of a lay, a lay line. So you've got that Great North Road. But in the Hopi and, and uh, uh, Navajo traditions, that's where the people came from deep within the earth. They came from within the earth, they walked that road because it was such a sacred point where Mother Earth gave birth. They walked down the Great uh, Road and gave the site of Charco Canyon, which is on an immense circular earth energy pattern, and built the great houses there. And we have exactly the same kind of myths in this area where you get Le- uh, ley lines and earth energies, their birth in alpha points, it's called, where they emerge from the earth. So I do see similarities. But yes, Jonathan, I'd go for landscape archaeology.
0: Okay, uh, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Keith, why don't you bring in uh, whichever caller you want?
1: Uh, let's see,
0: Robert, Robert Morningstar, are you there? You're on the other side of midnight.com. Nope. Not there. Okay. I am here. Um, I'm here. Keith asked me to mention to the audience that uh, clocks are supposed to be uh, moved ahead one hour. And I forgot about that too. My gosh, it's that time yeah, already. Yeah. It's
5: 3.50. <laughs> you here, Robert? Yes,
0: I'm oh, here. Not Robert? Okay. We have Robert on the line. Uh, how you doing tonight, Robert?
5: Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm enjoying the show. And the reason I'm calling is that I think that Russell asked a very important question about the mRNA vaccine. And he is quite correct. It is something that does debilitate your immune system because it's based on the same model that HIV uses to invade the body. HIV invades the body with a retrovirus, and what Pfizer and the others have done was substitute mRNA which effectively changes your, your, genomic, uh, mechan- your genomic identity and makes you a factory for spike protein. But the good news is that there are protocols that are therapeutic and prophylactic. They worked before. They were developed by Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, and um, it's quite detailed. And so, Russell, I'm going to write you a very long email tomorrow explaining uh, everything that you can do you asked the most important question that anyone could ask in this day and age and you're exposing one of the worst things that has ever happened to mankind and that's basically all i wanted to say thank you for the question and i'll be in touch with you but my friend jill has a comment or a question that she'd like to ask she's also quite expert on this
7: Yes, uh, hello. I would like to also thank you for uh, this discussion and suggest to you uh, that, in discussing that um, shingles, uh, that you felt that you may have had shingles. um, I would like to propose that um, there may be more to this uh, shingles than we. And we realize, and that actually uh, people coming down with these effects vaccinated and unvaccinated because of the uh, nanotechnology that we're all being exposed to now through, um, upon looking more carefully at the shingles reaction uh, with a simple magnification of about fifteen times. Um, If you carefully wipe your skin and examine what you see under magnification, you might actually be able to see um, that the body is trying to release some of this um, hydrogel um, graphene oxide structures and more than that as well. Um, so I would just like to propose, uh, encourage people to, when they feel that they have shingles, that there may be something more going on with the body trying to detoxify from this um, nanotechnology. Uh, and uh, thank you for the mention of touchstone essential. It's they also make a wonderful product,
0: which is called um, zeolite. Thank which you,
3: Jill. What do you also... think about that, Elizabeth? Yes. Yeah, she's um, absolutely touched on, and I think what she's going to say. The product is is called Pure Body. Um, Pure Body yes. will, yes. yeah, it it will um, uh, detox uh, nanoparticles. It's an excellent um, form of, of zeolite, highly patented and secret. The way they've actually modified it, um, and what I've discovered, not only will it clear nanoparticle toxins from the from the body from vaccines, it will also clear nanoparticles from um, uh, geoengineering, or, or commonly known as chemtrails, as well. Exactly. Thank you oh. so much.
7: Thank you for the program. I- Okay. Yeah,
0: thank oh, you. And good night. Great trails. show. Yeah. We'll keep listening. Bye. Thank you, Robert. Um, yeah, it reminds me of like being at, at Harvard where I feel like the students are dumbed down and,
2: <laughs> you know, we're,
0: we're on Appian way. And I point up to, I watch the sky all the time. Cause I, I fly <laughs> around at night. So during the day I tend to look <laughs> up and a lot of people don't look up. And so, um, I'm with some students and I point up to the sky and I say, what do you think about that? And there's a tic-tac-toe pattern and the planes are yeah. spreading and stuff. And they go, oh, those are contrails. And I, I say, N- they're not contrails. These these are chemtrails and they last a very long time. And it, it has to do with the uh, weather modification from what I understand. And they're like, nobody can control the weather, Jonathan. Come on. So... Yeah, that's how it is. (laughs) Now, Russell, how how did you get rid of the the shingles? Did they go away on their own?
1: Was it your body detoxifying itself? No, they gave me a very old antivirus material. I I once had a virus infection a long time ago. I was injured by a laser, and I got a... uh, viral infection and i can't quite remember it, it's the it's the still most common antiviral medication if it, and i'm not i'm not going to be able to remember it mm-hmm. uh but I was, I was given it something that at the time that i was first injured which would have been uh in the 1970s, it was new, and they were still using the exact same stuff uh, as the antivirus for shingles. That worked pretty swiftly. I, w- I was entirely better in three weeks.
2: Hmm.
1: No. It's like, it's like uh, a That That's 90% correct. It's not entirely correct. Well,
0: recently, though, I mean, you said you had the vaccine, and then you had some shingles, and but it went away. So did that go away on its own?
1: No, it went away because I took medicine that oh, cured it's the virus. Oh, the same medicine. Oh, okay. As, I see. That is, I, I was damaged by a laser, which is a long story. Um, I was protected from from infrared but I was burned by ultraviolet that damaged my cornea and the cornea got a viral infection. Hmm. A, 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 my brain is slowly coming together. It's called acyclovar. Very common antiviral. Yeah. It's like the antiviral. Yes. Maybe it's the only one. Anyway, that, that worked very quickly for me. That is within a few days I was close to asymptomatic And at the end of three weeks, I was entirely well.
0: Hmm. All right. We have about seven minutes to the bottom of the hour. And um, a question I had for Maria is how did dowsing figure into – I've seen pictures of your father walking around what seems to be a a crop circle, and he's got the dowsing rod in his hand. and, And what is that about?
6: Yes, I mean a lot of the crop, a lot of the crop circles are man-made uh, in this area of Wessex, uh, for sure. So I would say about eighty, ninety percent are man-made. I know the world's greatest crop circle maker, for instance, and what they can do is absolutely artistic. But going back earlier to to the nineties, where the the energies of the circles were just manifesting, my late father was taught by a very top European master dowser, far, far greater than anyone was in Britain in that time. And and Dad also knew people like Hamish Miller and Paul Broadhurst, who were just discovering at that time earth currents. So what it was felt about these crop circles, and many of them I doused with him as well, was they were manifestation points for a particular type of energy that comes up out of the ground in quite a big force actually and goes in a clockwise or anti-clockwise direction that also goes back into to the earth it's like a it's called a funnel in terms of earth energy formations So the crop circles over here, they've become into two camps now, the genuine ones and the man-made ones. But if we interact with this type of energy, and interestingly, the Knights Templar, they would incorporate it into their churches and the Masons into their lodges for instance, because it can really expand the the consciousness. And when it's integrated into a medieval church after the Knights Templar, this type of uh, funnel energy is called the bishop's run. the bishop doesn't run in this instance, but walks around the church in a particular manner. And when that uh, was walked around the church in that manner, it can really expand you spiritually second to none. So what was happening in the 90s was you had hundreds of people going into these crop circles, all of whom and many of which had that automatic expansion of consciousness. That's why the new age at that time in the UK really took off because people were interacting with that type of earth energy.
0: Wow. Now, this is the the actual crop circles, not the man-made ones. And the actual crop circles, what your father felt they came from, I mean, is it UFOs doing this? What causes these crop circles? Is it Earth energies?
6: I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, some of them are like pure Earth energy, and they're always associated with aquifers. That's one thing that the research gave out was where, wherever they are, they're associated with uh, a type of yin aquifer, that's water that's chemically produced within the earth, independent of rainfall. But a lot of the researchers that were out in the landscape at that time were seeing things like earth lights or bowls, as they're called now, around crop circles, which have been filmed. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project he, when he was on a crop circle night watch in the nineties, he claimed that he saw a uFO land quite close to one as well it 's a very mystical landscape where where I live where you do see very strange light phenomena at night. You were talking about chemtrails, you and Elizabeth, earlier, which I found very interesting, Jonathan. I'd just like to add, I was speaking last year at the UK's largest UFO conference, second to none, which was then in Blackpool. It's changing venue this year. And Giorgio from Ancient Aliens came on, and his first sentence was, If you believe in flat earth, I don't believe in flat earth, but he said this, if you believe in flat earth and chemtrails, there's the door. Hmm.
0: Whoa. So he doesn't believe in chemtrails.
6: No, Uh, he was adamant that that this is all a kind of, you know, look this way and look that way uh, as, uh, you know, disinformation. But I just thought I'd add that in because... Hmm. We all think that certain types of speakers believe in certain things, and certainly they do not.
0: Yeah. Boy, that is, uh, I would not expect to hear that from him.
6: The audience did it. There was a sharp intake of breath from hundreds of people.
0: Wow. Okay, well, uh, we are nearing the bottom of the hour,
1: so... Um, yeah, I don't believe in the Flat Earth Society, because I have three casts here. And if the earth was flat, they would have pushed everything off the edge. <laughs>
2: bravo. Oh,
0: bravo, yes. All right, well, uh, we're going to uh, take a little break here. You're listening to the other side of midnight.com. We're talking with Maria Wheatley, Russell Targ, and Elizabeth Brown. Uh, we'll be back in about 90 seconds. Don't touch that dial.
5: Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits.
1: Search the archives.
2: Listen
0: to
1: past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day
5: support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk Radio at the cutting edge of
1: science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
0: Welcome back to the other side of midnight.com. I'd like to uh, ask Elizabeth about her items tonight. She's got four very interesting pictures. Um, let me tell you how to get there: is you go to the other side of midnight.com and scroll down, click on the banner for tonight's show. That takes you to the show page, and you'll see uh, items from uh, our guest. So, Elizabeth, what are we looking at in these items of yours?
3: Yeah, when I, um, when I wrote the book, I wanted something r- really concrete, something to illustrate um, the dowsing process and to add something to all the other hypotheses about how dowsing works. And I went to Dr. Harry Oldfield, who, by the way, has worked at the Monroe Institute, um, extraordinary man and, and biologist and and researcher energy researcher and he invented a system of photography called um PIP Polycontrast interference photography and I went to the University of, of Telford in the UK and Harry set up this um it what it actually is, is is real time it's a real real time system and it's the interaction of Rather than, rather than um, Kallian photography, which is electrical pictures of an object in the field, um, what he did was actually use light, use photons to show the same sort of field effect. So PIP photography is, is, is a technology in a, in a real-time photo imaging system that can t- distinguish between many different grades and different qualities of light so I was dousing at distance on a client who was probably 300 miles away uh, under um, conditions in the university and um, Harry was filming me with his PIP photography and what you see in the first photograph the, the 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 color those bands of color are actually quite normal through through the lens, but what happened over five ten minutes of my distant dowsing uh, dowsing on the immune system of the client three hundred miles away mm-hmm. was the marked changes in the in the light and there was there were three main things first of all the this is what Harry was most taken with. The three things were how when we're dowsing, how we change the environment around us. And bands of light, of this shocking pink light, were moving across the floor. And the light changed behind me from very intense to much more pastel colors. Um, And then what appeared over, um, that's my left shoulder. Uh, was a white light, and it grew and grew and grew over the period of filming. When I was literally dowsing, you can see me holding my dowsing rod. The 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 white light actually came and covered half of the room. It was so intense and so bright. This is all I've got, I've actually got the moving footage. I know these are only stills. What fascinated Harry more than anything is. When I'd finished dowsing, instead of just changing color or fading away, it, it just stopped. The light just completely stopped. And what he was saying was it was as if I'd um, gone to a reference library, taken out a book, opened the book, read the contents, put it back, finished over, and it switched off. Which I suppose is akin to our idea of 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 record, or what I'm saying is the the um, the uh, quantum field of of the subject. So these are these are exclusive and um, unique uh, photographs, and I've got them, as I say, the moving footage, watching it. And the last thing is, and I and I talk about this, and and I'm sure Maria agrees that. When we're dowsing, it's a whole body experience. You're using a massive amount of energy, not just physical energy, psychic energy, emotional energy, mental, spiritual energy. And um, working through our chakra system, what happened when Harry was filming me was from... And I'm wearing a black top, just complete... It was in a completely white room and I'm wearing totally black clothes. So you can see how intense the colors became um, on the um, spinal column and perhaps on my chakra system, uh, particularly the heart chakra. And the blues and the reds were flashing so quickly. It was almost like a shimmering. Um, And I use this to illustrate to, to students that, you know take a break when you're dowsing don't douse for hours because it is can can be um quite exhausting to do that because you're using so many faculties on physical and emotional mental and spiritual levels
0: do you get colors like this maria when you're Have you doused Stonehenge? or? I I know,
6: Harry Alfield, I do disagree with some of his work, but that's another story. Maybe not with what Elizabeth's doing, but with his earth energies, we replicated a system of his. But nonetheless, how I was taught to douse by master dowsers. this might be a tip for Elizabeth's students, is yes, you're right, you don't dance for a long time, but if you're around certain energies, go to a calm earth energy, and your aura and your chakra system goes back to, to normal uh, as well. So we can work with the earth in, in different ways so that if we do feel depleted in energy, it's often because the, the energy is what's called in European terms, as well I'm sure Elizabeth knows, is electric, and then you go to a magnetic type of earth energy, and it negates that that energy depletion.
2: Hmm. Well, what do I you mean, think of that?
6: With, with Harry Oldfield, we went out to, with one of his colleagues to stand in stones to test out some theories. And I think he's got part of a system, but I really do feel it needs some, some more work on it. But I think in its, it's niche stage with, with Earth Energies. So I, 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 I'm not a yes person. And
3: so I did disagree with some of his work initially. Mm-hmm. I, I can't comment on that. But I have to say, I know nothing about Earth or very little about, about Earth energies, So I bow to your experience on that. But all I know, this was in a controlled circumstance in in the laboratory at the university and was showing the energetic changes that were happening specifically in the dowser's body and around the dowser's body.
6: Yes, I'm sure that that's a current. I was uh, specifically talking about Earth energies, but uh, you know, mm. I respect I everybody's work. I just don't necessarily always agree. Mm. <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> well, the colors remind me of the portals at Arches Park and all the colors there that are invisible to the naked eye. Mm. Um, in the last uh, last 20 minutes of the show, I'd like to go over Russell's items uh, involving the precognitive dreaming. And uh, if you go to Russell's items, let's see. We have um, the first one is Esalen. Uh Do you want to talk about, Russell, what that dream involved?
1: Yes, I, I have the idea from the past year's precognitive dream that our precognitive dreams are caused by the feedback we have in the future so in this case I I had taught at Esalen for 40 years and then in 2012 uh, I decided I got tired of teaching the same material I said that's the last time I was going to be there so 10 years later I had a very realistic, very sharp dream in which I was standing at the bridge over a river leading up to the big house where we would all get together and do our conferences with the home of uh, Mike Murphy, who was the uh, president of Esalen. And in this dream, I wanted to be with all my friends uh, where we many, many times would get together. To to have conferences, try and understand what's the next thing in physics, what's the next thing in this uh, understanding of psychic abilities. And my deal that I've made with the universe is you don't get credit for a precognitive dream unless you write it down before it happens. Or in my case, if I have a very high-quality, sharp, precognitive dream, I'll tell my wife about it as soon as they get out of bed. The dream, you can recognize a precognitive dream because it's free of things you're anxious about or wish fulfillment dreams. If you dream that you're going to fail a math test that you have the next day and you haven't studied for the the test, that would not be a precognitive dream. That would be what you expect to fail the test if you haven't studied for it. So dreams about things in your life or that you're anxious about uh, would not be indicative of a precognitive dream. You need dreams that are unusually vivid or bizarre, particularly outside of your day-to-day activity. So I had a dream that I was at the bridge on the way to the Esalen Big House, and I couldn't go there because I didn't have enough money to attend the meeting. And, of course, there, there is no money to attend the meeting. It's an it's a invitation. And I woke up. The so I hadn't been to Esalen for a decade. I'm not thinking about Esalen. So I told my wife, I had this really strange dream. But well, I was within sight of the big house, but I couldn't get there because the r- river was in my way. And that was... So, out of my thought stream, that I the the idea is uh, to to describe a dream you've had that's going to come true, and avoid telling dreams that don't come true, because that loses your credibility. So I'm trying to be very discerning about what I will put in the black big black book in order to get credit for the dream and not lose credit by telling bogus dreams. So I thought this was a good-looking dream. I told my wife about it and grabbed a cup of coffee and went to my desk where I'm sitting right now. I have a big 28-inch monitor. I turned it on and looked at my mail, and the first mail I got was from my friend Jeffrey Cripel, who I vaguely remembered... Well, He's a religion professor at Rice University, and I vaguely remember that he was thinking about making a movie at Esalen, but I clicked on the film, I clicked on the button of his message for me, and what appeared there is a picture that he must have taken 10 years ago, because I'm sitting in a circle in that room at Esalen in the picture in a circle with all my friends, and I'm sitting there at a meeting we had. I didn't remember him taking a picture or making a film. I'm I'm just sitting there listening to somebody giving a lecture. But somehow, the experience of having the Esalen Circle pop up on my screen uh, half hour later, I believe, was the cause of my dream at an earlier time now three men have now gotten three men have now gotten Nobel prizes for the ideas of entanglement that Schrodinger described in the 1920s these men had done experiments with lasers to show that photons that are born together stay together and what that means is that uh What I'm postulating is that your awakened awakened brain is entangled with your sleeping brain. That is, when you're asleep, you will soon have an experience that's brought to you by your awakened mind. So in this case, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I had a dream about Esalen, and at 8 o'clock in the morning, I had uh, that exact picture shown to me. So I'm saying that my 8 o'clock wide awake brain is in communication with my 6 o'clock dreaming brain, which is wide open to receive signals. The idea is that precognition exists. It's usually accurate and vivid because you're not looking into the future it's that your future brain has an experience, and that future brain is entangled with your sleeping brain. So they can make a perfect contact, and precognitive dreams are, in general, particularly vivid and illuminating.
0: So it's time entang- entanglement, really.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Now, what about the pumpkin? What is that about?
1: The pumpkin is really what stimulated this idea. I, I had a dream in which my wife was dragging a large pig down the street. She had this enormous pig that she was dra- dragging down the street. And I woke up and realized that that is absolutely outside. There are no pigs in my life. Uh, my wife has probably never dragged a pig anywhere. But it was unusually vivid. It's sort of a a crazy dream did not pertain to wish fulfillment. I have no wishes to be anywhere near a pig. And I was so, so sure this was precognitive. I didn't even grab my bathrobe or my shoes. I just came paddling out into the kitchen where my wife was already awake watching television. And I told her, I just had this amazing dream We're dragging a huge pig down the street. And she said, well, if you look at the TV screen right above my head, you'll see that pig in a pickup truck. And I looked up, and sure enough, there was this giant pig hanging out of a pickup truck. And we then discussed it for a few minutes while I was looking at it. And then she laughed, and of course, it was not a pig hanging out of a pickup truck. It was a one-ton pumpkin, because this was before Halloween, just before Halloween. And this was the pumpkin that won the American pumpkin contest, because no one had ever seen a one-ton pumpkin. And the stalk at the end of the pumpkin was hanging out the truck, because it was so large. And what I had dreamt about was what I saw in the TV screen. And the reason it's very important to me is my vision is very poor, as some of you realize. And as I looked at, my wife was teasing me, pointing to the truck, there's your pig. She was aware that I I couldn't tell the difference between a pig and a pumpkin from across the room. And the importance of this dream for me is that the dream was caused by my Poor visual impression of what I was going to see a half hour later. That is the only the reason that I saw a pig is because I misperceived what was in the truck. See, if I if, if there had been a if there had been a pig in the truck, I wouldn't be telling this story because it wouldn't be interesting. The fact that I dreamt about what I would perceive. When I finally saw the thing in the truck, that my my misperceived image of the pumpkin in the truck was the cause of my dream. And the only way that could happen is if the dream was actually caused by the experience at a later time. Now,
0: you have a third case here of precognitive dreaming. And it looks like it
1: involves your
0: parents in in the bookstore that they had when you were a boy.
1: Well, the dream I had was of an electric train running around the uh, wainscoting of the, I live in a house with a cathedral ceiling. And in the dream, this electric train was running around the edge of the ceiling with its lights on and a square front like a German Markline train, which I don't have. And there's never been electric train in this house where I've lived for the last 50 years. There have been no kids, no electric trains. But uh, I told my wife about the strange dream about an electric train running around the ceiling. And as, as it happens, we now have Christmas tree lights running around the ceiling where the train was in my dream. I went to my computer, front page of the New York Times. I should make you guess what it is. Front page of the New York Times was a photograph of reconstruction of the elevated train in the loop in downtown Chicago. It's called the loop because the elevated train runs in a circle, as it goes from the north side to the south side, and it's an area that I'm very familiar with my father had a bookshop on Dearborn Boulevard right under that elevated train so I would hypothesize that my dream that night was caused cause the, the cause of my dream that night was the fact that an hour later I was going to see that elevated train uh, on the front page of the New York Times and the picture that we show here is exactly of a train running on tracks with a square front of the lights on, just as I had in my dream. And, of course, I'm not dreaming about 60 years ago in Chicago where I lived there. I haven't been in Chicago for about 60 years. So I'm not, there are no elevated trains in my life or in my thought stream. The only place I could have gotten an elevated train in my thought is because I saw it on the screen uh, an hour later. So I, yeah, I, like, I love that. And, and these are all very sharp dreams that I could communicate to my wife in great detail. It, it looked exactly like a square-bodied markline train running with its lights in a circle, and that's exactly what I got to see. And you can see it in the in the image, the, ima- the image that John is showing is uh, the image that I saw. So what I I conclude from that is that precognition is available. It's very accurate. We were able to harness that 20 years ago to make a quarter million dollars in the stock market forecasting whether silver was going up or down a little or a lot. And that was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So for... uh, several weeks, at least, ESP was real, while well, people digested the fact that you can make money in the market by looking into the future.
0: Well, we we'll have not... about five minutes left. Um, we have a caller on the line with a question. Uh, let's bring the caller in, Keith. Welcome to the other no- side of the midnight. Caller, you're on the air.
5: Hi, I'm going to get quick. Um, I've always wondered if the entanglement couldn't be going in in our, in our brain and we're entangled to the past and entangled to the future so that we're communicating with the future and the past through this entanglement and i've had this idea since i guess the 70s (laughs) that's all where are you calling from uh long beach california
1: he's asking where's your physical body right now Long Beach, California. (laughs) Yeah, I I believe that you can communicate with the future and with the past. It's very difficult to prove that you're communicating with your past. Because let's say you're an archaeologist and you say, I know this land looks perfectly flat right now, but there used to be a beautiful temple right here. And let me draw you what the temple looked like with all these scroll work and the towers. And somebody said, well, that's very beautiful. I'll try and do a historical analysis. And he discovered, yes, 500 years ago, there was a temple just like what you've drawn. So we don't know whether your experience of the temple is from your psychic connection of the past, or whether it's your psychic connection to the future, where the guy shows you the picture of what used to be here. Ah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it. Thanks. Yeah. But, but, there, but there's no leakage for the future. That if I tell you the silver is going to go up a lot, and I buy silver and it goes up a lot, there's no place I could get that information by ordinary means. You've got it. The only place you can get that information is from the future.
0: Thank you for calling, Don. Thank you. And in the few minutes we have left, I just want to give a, an opportunity for Elizabeth and Maria and Russell. Just, uh, Do you have any final thoughts, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, that you want to add?
3: want to say thank you to... Um... Thank you for the invitation and especially to be able to hear um, Russell in in person and live reliving all this extraordinary this extraordinary time uh, in history and um, and uh, thank you and wonderful.
0: Maria, what do you want to add?
3: Well, uh, well, again, you know, Russell's a
6: fascinating person, and uh, and so is Elizabeth. So uh, I'm in good company. Uh, and with yourself, <laughs> Jonathan. Uh, but I'd just like to add, what I think you're seeing at Archer's Park with the colors could be what's called the earth colors. And there are 12 which are related to all forms of earth energy, and one prevails.
2: Geomantics.
6: So Yes, yeah, yeah. So There the are geomantic colors of the earth. There's esoteric colors of the sun, and there's esoteric colors of the earth as well, and it's a fascinating branch of dowsing.
0: I have to learn more about that because I, I think you're right. That's what I'm seeing at Arches yes. Park. Yes. Uh, Russell, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, we have about two minutes to the, the show close.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to hear what these very interesting women have to say. And my conclusion is that you should try and get in touch with your psychic abilities. I know that the uh, two dowsers have done that, but I encourage your listeners to quiet their mind and just look into the distance and see what's available to you. It's been known for thousands of years that our nature is timeless awareness. Those are the words of Padmasambhava from 1,200 years ago. And you can move your awareness into those timeless realms if you quiet your mind. And don't try and name things or grasp them. If you just experience in your meditation, look into the distance and look into the future. It's available. And you don't have to eat porridge with your guru or believe anything. It's just the nature of who you are.
0: I'd like to thank my guests, Maria Wheatley, Elizabeth Brown, and Russell Targ. Uh, That's the end of the show, and uh, feel free to stick around for the after party, and we can debrief. So on behalf of Richard Hoagland and the other side of Midnight, my name is Jonathan Womack. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow night.